Well, happy Father's Day. <laughs> My name is Tim. I'm feeling real loud. Uh, but it's great to be with you today. And you might have noticed that that passage is all about the seven bowls of God's wrath or God's anger, which may seem like a rather odd way to, uh, or an odd passage to explore on Father's Day. And the reality is it's just where we're up to in our series in Revelation. Though in the providence of God, as I was reflecting on it, I do think it actually provides us a helpful way into today's topic. I say that because for many people, the idea of a God that gets angry or wrathful is problematic. And so uh, maybe you've heard people say things like, look, you know, if God is supposed to be a father, how could he be... Uh, how could he be so judgmental? Or if God is a God of love, then why does he get angry? Uh, maybe you've even said things like that yourself. Now, I'm not going to pretend that the anger and the judgment of God are easy concepts to grapple with. They're not. Uh, and so if these are genuine issues for you, then do take the time to wrestle with them. Having said that, a lot of the popular level, what I might call soundbite objections to the idea of a God of anger, I just don't think stand up to interrogation. I say that, for example, C.S. Lewis once said, anger is what love bleeds when you cut it. Anger is what love bleeds when you cut it. In other words, love and anger are not opposed to one another, they go hand in hand with one another. And so if a father doesn't get angry when his kids are mistreated, you would assume that that father doesn't love his kids. It's apathy, not anger, that is the opposite to love. And so again, I think we need to get beyond the soundbite objections to God's anger. In fact, if we take it one step further, I think we actually have to say, understood rightly, anger is a good thing. So for example, again, Lewis uh, once wrote a space trilogy called Perilandra. In the second book of the series, uh, he has the hero of the story, a guy named Elwyn Ransom, go head-to-head with, head head with this major villain, a guy named Weston. Uh, now, in the end, the hero, uh, Ransom, ends up willing the, winning the battle. But just have a look at how C.S. Lewis describes Ransom's feelings right before he, he, he starts this battle. He says, He felt what perhaps no good man can ever have in our world, a torrent of perfectly unmixed and lawful hatred. This filled Ransom not with horror, but with a kind of joy. The joy came from finding at last what hatred was made for. I love that phrase. He found at last what hatred was made for. Uh, notice also Lewis's just kind of almost recognition that the chances are none of us are ever going to really be able to experience this kind of feeling, this perfectly unmixed and lawful hatred. Why? Well, because each of us are so compromised by our own sin and selfishness that even our most righteous anger is never quite perfect, is it? We get angry too quickly, we get angry too much, we get angry over the right things. But in the Bible, the anger of God is always presented as perfectly unmixed and lawful. God's anger is always anger that bleeds from love, it's slow to be kindled, and it's always directed at injustice. 
Sometimes that's the injustice of humanity, us failing to love and care for one another. Sometimes it's the injustice of humanity failing to love and worship God. But whenever you see the God of the anger of God in the Bible, that's how it's presented. And today's passage is no different. A Revelation 15 and 16 present us with the perfect anger of a perfect father who desperately loves his children. In fact, the refrain that we're going to see all through these passages is that it's actually precisely because of God's anger that He is just and true in all He does. And so I'm just going to show you three different examples that we're going to see, or at least you see, in chapters 15 through 16. Revelation 15 verse 3, redeemed humanity on the other side of the final judgment, sing out, just and true are your ways, King of the nations. In Revelation 16.5, the angel cries out, You are just in these judgments, O Holy One. And then in 16.7, the martyrs under the altar in heaven cry, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Not once, not twice, but three times we're told that God's anger, as expressed in His judgments, are just and true. And so again, my hope today is that we can together get past the soundbite objection. By all means, object to a capricious and malicious God, but let's just not pretend that that's the God of the Bible. Instead, I want you to come with me and actually take the time to study the anger of God as it's presented to us in the Bible. And my prayer is that as we do, we'll see why the message of God's perfect anger or His wrath is actually a wonderful encouragement for the people of God to keep going and entrust themselves to a God who judges justly. To do that, uh, we're going to work through chapters 15 and 16. We won't cover all of it because there's a bunch in there, but we'll work through those two chapters. We'll do it under three headings. First of all, rejoicing in judgment. Second of all, the justice of judgment. And then third, waiting for the God of judgment. I'll give them to you again as we go through. But number one, rejoicing in judgment. Uh, if you've been with us for this series, you'll know that the book of Revelation is actually structured around a number of highly symbolic series of sevens. And so in chapters 2 and 3, you get the seven letters to the churches. But then from there, in chapters 6 and 7, you have seven seals. In chapters 8 to 11, the seven trumpets. Some people see in chapters 12 through to the start of 15, seven signs. And then today, we see in our passage, the seven bowls of God's wrath. And we've said a number of times uh, throughout that we're not supposed to read each of these series as chronological, whereby you have one series of seven, and then after that comes the next, and then after, as if you know, we're reading history. Instead, each of these series of seven takes the same time period and looks at it from a slightly different angle with a slightly different emphasis. And that time period, at least usually begins with the first coming of Jesus, travels through the final judgment and then into the new creation. What makes today's passage a little different is that the seven bowls actually start with a vision of the end. In other words, it starts with a vision of the end of time where you see God's people celebrating and rejoicing in the judgment that God has brought and only then does it go back to the start and you see the seven bowls being poured out on the earth. 
Now look, if you want to get technical for a moment, this is really just a footnote. I suspect most of us don't really bother, but if you want to be technical, uh, verses 1 to 4 of chapter 15 are, more technically speaking, a hinge in that they both finish off the previous series and start the new series, but the effect is the same. The seven bowls really do start with a vision of the end. And so uh, let's have a read of it together. It's uh, Revelation 15, verses 1 to 3. It says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues, last because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire and standing beside the sea, those who'd been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. They held harps given them by God and sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. As we've come to expect from the book of Revelation, this vision is full of symbols from the Old Testament, but really the interpretive key for this vision is given to us in that last little reference to the song of God's servant Moses. It kind of takes us back to the Exodus story. Now, many of us, I suspect, will be familiar with that story, but for the benefit of those of us who aren't, or maybe a little shady on the details, I'm just going to rehearse it briefly because it's not only going to set the backdrop to this vision, but also the bowls to come. So it's kind of important that we have a, an awareness of what happens. In short, uh, God's people were enslaved in Egypt to an evil tyrant Pharaoh. This guy was bad news, and so he didn't just mistreat the Israelites and treat them harshly. He actually commanded that all their baby boys, newborns, be thrown in the Nile River and drowned. And so God's people cry out to him for a deliverer. In time, God answers that prayer and sends Moses as a deliverer. So Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, I want you to let God's people go. Moses says, no. And so in response, God sends plagues on the Egyptians. Not one, not two, not three, but ten until finally Pharaoh relents, he lets the people go, Moses leads them out of Egypt through the middle of the Red Sea and eventually into the Promised Land. Although right before the end, things get a little intense because Pharaoh has another change of heart. He's let him go and then he thinks, no, what have I done? And so he sends his armies after the Israelites and they even follow, him in, follow them into the Red Sea. But that's when the Israelites get to the other side of the Red Sea. God tells Moses, stretch out your hand. And the Red Sea engulfs the armies of Pharaoh and destroys them all. It's actually a pretty confronting moment. On the one hand, the Israelites are overjoyed that they're finally free from their oppressors. On the other hand, Exodus 14 literally tells us they saw the bodies of the dead Egyptians washed up on the shore. And so in Exodus 15, they break out in something called the Song of Moses, in which they rejoice both in their salvation from their oppressors, but also the judgment that God has brought on them. So that's Exodus. If we now come back to Revelation, that's the backstory that John's vision is building off. It's a picture of the people of God at the end of time, rejoicing in their salvation and the judgment of God. But notice some key differences. This time, it's not just Pharaoh they've been victorious over, but the beast and those who follow him. 
And this time, they're not just singing the song of Moses, but the song of the Lamb. In other words, they're rejoicing in a greater deliverance over a greater enemy through a greater Savior. And so they sing in verse 4, 3, sorry. Great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of the nations. Notice, they're not just declaring the justice of God's judgment. They're rejoicing in it. They're singing about it. Now, uh, if you're coming to the book of Revelation afresh, uh, it may be that you find the thought of God's people rejoicing in God's judgment rather off-putting. In fact, even if you're not coming to it fresh and you're familiar with the book, you probably still find the thought of God's people rejoicing in judgment a little confronting. But this is where I think the parallel with the Exodus story is really helpful. You see, just put yourself in the shoes of an ancient Israelite. You're slaves in a foreign land. Your children have been slaughtered, drowned in the Red Sea, in the Nile River, sorry. And then just when you think you've finally escaped and you're going through the Red Sea of God's deliverance, you turn around and you see Pharaoh's army closing in on you. Of course you're going to celebrate when the waters close in and God wipes them out. Now, sure, maybe you wished that those oppressors had had a change of heart and had come to repentance, but they've had 10 chances. And the fact that they didn't repent is a sign that they were never going to. And so, again, you rejoice that God wipes them out. The situation for the first readers of Revelation wasn't all that different. I say that because when you read those seven letters to the seven churches at the start of the book, it's pretty clear they're doing it tough. Uh, Jesus says to the church in Ephesus, I know you've suffered hardship for my name. He says to the church in Smyrna, I know that some of you are going to be thrown in prison for my name. He says to the church in Pergamum, I know some of you have already been killed for my name. These Christians aren't living a comfortable, suburban, middle-class existence. They're suffering and they're oppressed. And so like the ancient Israelites, they call out to God for deliverance. In fact, we've actually read some of the kinds of things that they've been praying. Uh, back in Revelation 6.10, we read the prayers of the martyrs under the altar and they cry out, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? That's the kind of prayer that they all would have been praying. They're calling out for justice. They're calling out for God to actually demonstrate his love by getting angry and doing something about those who are shedding innocent blood. Now, why do I bring that up? I bring it up because the bowls of God's wrath that we're about to read about are presented as God's answer to the prayers of his people. How do you know that? Well, look at, scroll down to Revelation 15, 7. And we read, Then one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So they're the bowls. But the last time we saw golden bowls like this, they were filled with the prayers of God's people. You can see it back in, where is it? In chapter 5, verse 8, if you want to write it down. Filled with the prayers of God's people crying out for justice. And so 
the bowls of God's wrath are presented to us as God's answer to the prayers of his oppressed people. But the vision starts at the end. It starts with a picture of God's people rejoicing that, yes, finally, God actually did answer the prayers. He brought judgment. He brought salvation and justice to his people. And so, therefore, it's actually a vision of hope. A vision of hope that even if more people die, more Christians die, more Christians are oppressed for following Jesus, more Christians are thrown in prison, even if God shows himself to be slow to anger, he will one day bring justice on the earth. One day, the people of the Lamb will stand on the other side of their own Red Sea and rejoice that God has brought judgment on the beast and their oppressors. Now, yes, they may have hoped, they may have preferred to see their oppressors come to repentance and have a change of heart. But as we're about to see, those who are judged one day will have had many, many, many opportunities to repent and every time refuse to do so. And so in the end, the people of the Lamb will sing the song of the Lamb, rejoicing in the judgment of God. That's rejoicing in judgment. Number two, the justice of judgment. The justice of judgment. Uh, one of the things <clears throat> that's intriguing about the Exodus story is that it takes ten plagues before Pharaoh finally lets the people go. And even then, he has a change of heart to send the army after them, which ultimately leads to their complete destruction. Over the years, I've, I've wondered, why does it take ten plagues? See, it is tempting, isn't it, to view each of the ten plagues as almost desperate attempts by God to get Pharaoh to come to repentance and get his attention, and maybe there's something in that. The thing is, God actually tells Moses before the whole thing begins that the plagues aren't going to work, that Moses will continue to harden his heart and won't let them go. And so you actually read that as the story goes. Almost after every plague, you read these words, but Pharaoh hardened his heart and would not listen and let the people go. Now, it makes for a great story, but I tell you what, it's a painful read. In fact, at times you find yourself wondering, look, if God knew he wasn't going to repent, why doesn't he just wipe him out with the first plague? Why the ten? Why dragging it out? Why give him chance after chance after chance? Well, the truth is the book of Exodus doesn't spell that out for us, but I wonder if part of the reason is so that when God does finally drown the armies in the Red Sea, it's that no one could possibly say that God is not just. Pharaoh got ten chances. This is not a capricious God, a malicious God. This is a God who is slow to anger and abounding in love, but eventually enough is enough. And this God is going to come and deliver his people. The reason that's important is that the seven bowls of God's wrath are presented as a symbolic recapitulation of the ten plagues. The tragedy of the bowls is that they're poured out on the world for much the same reason and with much the same result. What do I mean? Well, let's think about the bowls for a moment. Each bowl is cast in the language of the plagues. We're not going to look at all of them, but I'll just illustrate it with three. 
Uh, chapter 16, verse 2, the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. 16.3, the second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned into blood like that of a dead person and every living thing in the sea died. Or 16.10, the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. Sores, blood, darkness, they're each plagues from the Exodus story. Uh, if you keep reading, there's also mention of fire from heaven, frogs, hail, all of which are other plagues. Again, we're supposed to see in the bowls a symbolic recapitulation, sort of a representation of the plagues on Egypt. Now, again, it's, it's important to emphasize they are symbolic. In other words, the vision is not suggesting that God is going to send literal sores, literal darkness, literal frogs on the earth again. Uh, each of those plagues in the Old Testament story are judgment on the gods of the Egyptians. So it's on judgment on the river god. It's judgment on the god of the sun, Ra. And so here, it, it's a symbolic way of saying that God is going to bring judgment on the idols of our world. Idols like health and wealth and commerce and power. Now, if we had more time, we could dig into each of these plagues and try to unpack the specific meaning of each. We could even ask questions like, well, why are there seven rather than ten? Uh, you know, why does the plague of blood come twice, one or a different one? And there would be some value in doing that. But I guess it would run the risk of over-interpreting the symbolism. Because remember, Revelation is apocalyptic literature. That means it's highly stylized and highly symbolic. And so it's definitely telling us something. But it tells us something like a poem or a picture tells us something, not like a prophetic blueprint. And so in broad brushstrokes, the vision is telling us that between the first and the second coming of Jesus, God will send many, not just seven, many judgments on the world. And what's more, this judgment will be, in some way, a response to the prayers of his oppressed people. The tragedy of the bowls, however, is that they don't ultimately, at least to begin with, bring an end to the suffering of God's people, nor do they bring their oppressors to repentance. Instead, they end up having the same effect as the plagues in Egypt did. For example, I'm gonna, three examples. You kind of just hear this refrain throughout the bowls. Chapter 16, verse 9, They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and glorify him. 16:11. People gnawed their tongues in agony and cursed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, but they refused to repent of what they had done. 16:21. And they cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. What effect do the bowls have on the people of the beast? Do they soften their hearts? Do they repent of sin and turn back to God? No. Just like Pharaoh, they harden their heart. They refuse to repent. They curse God. Back in Revelation 13.6, the beast, which is kind of this symbolic, it's Satan's forces maybe, the beast curses God. Here, 
those who follow the beast are being formed into his image and likeness. They curse God. They harden their hearts and ultimately they muster their forces against him. Uh, Grace City, I hope you see the tragedy of these verses. It's like watching a train wreck in slow motion. Time and time again, God's judgment comes on the world and exposes the worthlessness of our idols. Governments collapse, stock markets crash, next pandemic hits. Sometimes it is even more targeted. Someone gets sick, the business goes bust. And how do most people respond? Well, not by falling on their knees in repentance and crying out to God for help and mercy, but by hardening their hearts and cursing God. Uh, For many, particularly in the West, it's events like this that actually seem as evidence that God couldn't possibly exist. How could a loving God do this? Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, the pain is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Problem is, uh, some are so deaf that they don't want to hear. And so the people of God watch on in sadness as the train gets closer and closer to the ultimate crash. Uh, In the problem of pain, Lewis goes on to write, "In in the long run, the answer to all those who object to the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs? To give them a fresh start, smoothing over every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he's done so on Calvary. That's the cross. To forgive them? They will not be forgiven. They refuse to repent. To leave them alone? Alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. At the end of the day, the judgment of God will fall on the beast and all who follow him. And when it does, nobody will be able to say God's not just. He is slow to anger and abounding in love. But eventually enough is enough and he's going to come to the deliverance of his people. Until then, those under the altar in heaven cry out, verse 7, Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments. What do we do while we wait? We've done rejoicing in judgment, we've done sort of the justice of judgment. What do you do while while you wait for the God of judgment? Let's jump into that one now. Uh, One of the concerns of people that they often have with the idea of a God of judgment and anger that his followers, people like us, are going to be tempted to, you know, preempt things a little and, and do a little bit of judging themselves, you know, start the process off early. Uh, and while there are some tragic examples throughout church history where people at least naming the name of Christ have done that, they're clearly doing it against the teaching of the New Testament. Everywhere the New Testament t- says, you know, leave judgment to God. It's God's prerogative, not ours. Leave space for it. What's more, though, as problematic as that possibility may be, it was unlikely to be much of a risk for the first readers of Revelation, because remember, these guys are the underdogs. Uh, they, even if they'd wanted to, they wouldn't have had much luck rising up and overthrowing the strength of the Roman Empire. No, no, no. Far more likely, their temptation was going to be to side with the Roman Empire, to actually just give up on Jesus because it's too hard. They keep getting thrown in prison and killed, Actually, you can live a far more comfortable life, get ahead, if you just side 
with the forces that were opposing the Christians. I suspect that's why Jesus interrupts the vision of the sixth bowl with a call to his people to stay spiritually awake. And so we see it in verse 15. Look, says Jesus, I come like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed so as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed. The idea of Jesus coming like a thief, it's supposed to represent, you know, it could come at any moment, be prepared, don't be caught off guard like when a thief turns up. It's a way of encouraging his people to stay spiritually alert and ready for his return rather than giving in to compromise and a spiritual slumber, which raises the question, doesn't it? How do you stay spiritually awake? How do you stay awake to the return of Jesus? Well, well, part of the answer is through listening to the voice of Jesus and living a life of ongoing repentance. See, sometimes repentance is cast as this thing that the church calls on the world to do. And there's something to that. But it is interesting that in the book of Revelation, over half, I don't know exactly how much it is, but over half of the references to repentance in the book of Revelation are given to the church. And so if you go back and read those seven letters, at the start, the church in Ephesus is told to repent because they've forsaken their first love. The church in Pergamum is told to repent of their idolatry. The church in Thyatira are told to repent of their sexual immorality. Sardis are told to repent of their spiritual apathy. Laodicea are told to repent of their greed. And therefore, what distinguishes the church from the world is not that one group needs to repent and the other doesn't. It's that one group does repent and the other doesn't. And so ask yourself, are you living a life of ongoing repentance hearing the voice of Jesus and letting him conform you, change you. Are you being conformed to the image of the lamb, Jesus, or the image of the beast? The Christian life is not about a one-off moment of repentance, a one-off prayer that you pray at a conference when you're a kid. It's about an ongoing life of following the lamb and making sure you're ready for his return. And so again, ask yourself, are you ready for the return of Christ. Because as you read through bowl 6 and 7, which talk about the battle of Armageddon and the final judgment, it's pretty clear that when that day comes, you want to be awake to the lamb, not under the spell of the beast. We won't read all of the details now, but bowl 6 describes the way in which the unholy trinity... We're introduced to these guys a few chapters earlier. The dragon, the beast, and the false prophet, they muster their forces together to wage war against God. And so in 1614 and 16, we read, they are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day of God Almighty. Then they gather the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, chances are, uh, whether you're familiar with the Bible or not, you've heard of Armageddon. Uh, Armageddon just means Mount of Megiddo. Megiddo is a real place in the land of Palestine. You can visit it today. Uh, it was, at least in the Old Testament, kind of the location of a number of battles in which the enemies of God came and attacked them. But again, 
as you would expect, or as we've been led to expect throughout our journey in Revelation, it's being used symbolically. In other words, it's not suggesting that you know, one day there's going to be an epic final battle in the land of Palestine at this place, Megiddo. But it is saying that there will be in some way a climactic moment at the end of time where Satan musters his forces together in an attempt somehow to overthrow God. That doesn't give us more details than that. But what Satan doesn't realize is that it's the sixth bowl of God's wrath that has caused him to gather the forces together. And what's more, God has done that so that those forces might be perfectly positioned for destruction. It's like Pharaoh getting his armies and sending them into the Red Sea, not realizing that by gathering them together and putting them there, he is perfectly positioning them for God to destroy them. And so when you get to bowl seven... As the bowl is poured out, there's an earthquake beneath and hailstones from above which completely wipe out the enemies of God's people. And so the chapter finishes not with a bowl of wrath, but with a cup of wrath. In Revelation 16, 19, we read, God remembered Babylon the Great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. If you're thinking, well, hang on. Why is he talking about Babylon? Uh, you have to come back next week. We'll think about Babylon next week. But the point is that one day, all who follow the beast will be made to drink the undiluted cup of God's fury and wrath, which is a terrible thing indeed. And so Jesus shakes us and he says, Stay awake. Don't fall under the spell of the beast. I'm coming. And when I do, Blessed will be those who are waiting for me. Let me finish. I began today by suggesting that we need to get past soundbite objections to the anger of God. Now, it may still be that you've got some questions, you've got some objections, that's okay. But I hope at least that you can see that despite the claims of some, the God of the Bible is not capricious and malicious. He is slow to get angry. And abounding in love. But here's the thing. So far, and maybe you've felt this tension, so far we've been skipping over an awkward truth. And that is up until now, the anger and the fury and the judgment of God has been directed away from God's people for the sake of injustices done to them. But God's people aren't perfect either, are they? Right? What about the injustices done by them? What about their failure to love and care for one another as they should? What about their failure to love and worship God as they should? How could anyone sing the refrain of these chapters, that all of God's ways are just and true, if he never brings judgment on the sin of his people? Right, surely that's selective justice. Surely that's favoritism, which in the end is no justice at all. Unless, of course, he does bring judgment on the sins of the people. Which brings us to the cross of Christ. On the night before Jesus was crucified, Luke tells us he's in the Garden of Gethsemane sweating drops of blood. Apparently, that's the doctors tell us that sometimes when the body is under incredible stress... You can actually do that. 
Given he's about to be crucified the next day, that may not surprise you. Of course he's under stress. The thing is, it's unlikely to be the physical pain that he's stressed about. And we can say that because right before he drops, uh, he sweats drops of blood, Luke tells us this. Jesus prays, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup there is an unmistakable reference to the cup of God's wrath. In other words, Jesus knew that at the cross, he was going to suffer under the judgment of God. At the cross, he was going to drink the undiluted cup of God's fury and wrath. And so he says, Father, if there is any way that I don't have to drink it. But in the end, he submits to the will of his Father. He goes to the cross and he drinks that cup, which raises the question, why? Why would God give the cup of his undiluted wrath to Jesus Christ. Well, the beautiful message of the gospel is that he does it so that he might give to people like you and I the cup of his love. Grace City, all of us deserve to drink the cup of God's wrath, but he's a father. He is slow to anger and he's abounding in love and so he gives us a choice and he says, all right, you can go your own way. You can follow the way of the beast if you really want to. But one day you'll drink the cup of my wrath. Or you can worship the lamb, the one that I sent to drink that cup on your behalf. I say, please, don't fall for the soundbite. Yes, God's a God of love. Yes, God is a father. But this father, his fatherly love is so great that it doesn't just bleed with anger when you cut it. It's also willing to drink every last drop of that anger to protect his children. And so with fear and trembling, we as the people of God, if you trust in Christ and hearts full of worship can say, all your ways are true and just, Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a good, a perfect, and a gracious God who is slow to become angry. Lord, we thank you for the words of this passage that tell us that one day you will bring justice and judgment on the world and that when that day comes, everyone will say that true and just are your ways. Until then, Lord, we pray Give us repentant hearts. Help us to listen to the voice of your son, your precious son, who drank the cup on behalf of people like us. Help us to live as your servants, as your children. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.